choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. a series in Deuteronomy entitled, entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And we've looked at the foundation of uh, that we, we, a foundational understanding of God that we needed to understand. We've looked at some resolutions. And then the last couple of weeks, we've been talking about what it looks like to take this foundation and these resolutions and then begin to apply it in our life to see the gospel of Jesus Christ shape us into Christ's image uh, for glory unto God. And so we're laboring in this for a wholehearted allegiance through a whole life obedience. And so hopefully it's encouraging to you, it's helpful for you, and in every way uh, you are benefiting from it by growing uh, and, and maturing in your spiritual walk. So as we begin today, we're considering Moses' instructions and command for the people. So we took a turn last week and we looked at our true identity that grows out of a right worship to God. And I talked to you about the next 13 chapters of Deuteronomy for us the next four or five weeks. We're just going to talk about what it means for us to live on mission in the world. If it's through mission that we mature and we grow and that God is shaping our lives for glory through mission, then, then we need to understand what it looks like to live missionally or to live on mission in the world. So I, I want to recap very briefly to begin today some of the uh, uh, truths that we've learned from the earlier chapters that create kind of a, a five, what I call five statements to discern a gospel application for us. As Christians in the modern day, reading the Old Testament, what do we need to remember in order to faithfully apply it to our lives? And so let me give these to you briefly. These are all truths that we've looked at, looked at over the last several weeks in Deuteronomy. But, but number one, we learned that all of life is lived as worship, not so we can worship. And we, we saw that true worship is expressed as relationship, as stewardship, and as mission. And so we don't live just so that we can worship God, but because He takes up residence in us through a relationship and lives within us, all of life is lived as worship. This is a monumental shift for Christians, a, a paradigmatic a transformation for the way that we understand this life, for purpose, for meaning, the way we live in this world, every part of it is as worship unto God. Okay? So the second statement that we looked at is this. We saw that Jesus centers life in worship in order to grow us and mature us through tests and trials. We looked at some of those threats that come against us and try to, uh, try to deceive us and threaten us and, and cause us uh, uh, or tempt us to, uh, uh, to sin. But we saw that when Jesus centers our life, he, he grows us and matures us through every test and every trial and every temptation. And, and we saw that nothing gets wasted. 
What, what a beautiful promise that because of Jesus, none of our life gets wasted. He can redeem it all. It is the ultimate eternal recycling plan. The third truth that we saw was this, that God shapes people by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the gospel we know from Romans 1 is God's power that calls us out of sin and to Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. And when we believe the gospel, Jesus is the one that we place our trust in and faith in. So God shapes us. It is also true that God saves us by the gospel. That is a true statement. But what I don't want us to do is to understand that and to think that somehow that once we're saved, the gospel is no longer uh, applicable for us. He shapes us through the gospel in every way. The fourth statement is this, that Jesus transforms people to live for God's glory on the earth. And so as he is shaping us by the gospel, he's transforming us into his image from the inside out. It's what we looked at last week in chapter 14, verses 1 and 2. For you are sons of the living God. You're a people holy to the Lord. God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the earth to bear his name among the people. And so we're transformed to live for God's glory on the earth. And that's what we talked about, that when we worship God rightly, as He is worthy to be worshipped, it leads us to a true identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. And we're, we're just here to live out that identity. Just to, to be faithful to who God is being faithful to be within us. And finally, we understand that Christians glorify God in the world by living in that true identity from God. So as we learn what that true identity is, by faith in Jesus, we live out from that identity. And that's how we bring honor and glory to God. So it comes to us in the form of a question to ask, how does Jesus shape life to glorify God through mission. Well, as we remember these five statements, these five truths that we have learned, we will see that through those truths, God will apply his word to our heart, to our life, to every situation of life, and transform us through that into the image that he wants us to be. And all we discuss from here forward in Deuteronomy will build on the foundation of these truths. I'm not going to repeat them every week, give them to you this week, and you'll have them but everything else we talk about will build on these five statements of truth. Listen, friends, everything we talk about from here forward in Deuteronomy will be radically practical for your daily life. Now, that's a, a different way of thinking about the Old Testament, isn't it? Radically practical for your daily life. If you understand it through the gospel. If you don't understand it through the gospel, you may dismiss it as irrelevant for your life. And so we see that. You see, the, the way that Christians live is because of who God is, because of what he has done for us in Jesus, and because of what he is doing in us to make his name known in the world. That's, that's what determines how Christians live. And so Christians are God's glory bearers in the world. We're God's glory bearers. We bear his glory in the world that others might see him and come into a relationship personally to worship him. And so where I'm going today is this. I want us to see that Jesus redeems our lives fully to demonstrate God's glory in every way. Jesus redeems our life fully to demonstrate God's glory in every way. And we're going to look at 
three different areas of life where Jesus redeems Christians to glorify God. And the first area we're going to look at this morning in chapter 14, verse 3 through 29, is in infused practices. Jesus redeems Christians to glorify God through infused practices. Go to chapter 14 with me because we're going to cover a lot of textual real estate today. We're not going to read every verse But verse 3 begins this way. You shall not eat any abomination. Well, good. I hate it when that's on the menu. Verse 4 says, these are the animals you may eat. And he begins to set forth animals that he will call clean. And then he will also identify animals that he calls unclean. And he says this, you may eat the clean ones. You may not eat the unclean ones. And so as he begins to instruct, he starts this way. You shall not eat any abomination. He's establishing food laws for the people of God. Animals that were clean and unclean. And here's God's purpose in this. God's purpose wasn't just to create a set of rules. That's not God's purpose for any of the law. But rather, he was showing the principle behind the law that there was a distinction from the people in the land and God's people. And one of the ways that distinction would be made known would be through their diet, through what they ate. That there would be meat or animals that they wouldn't eat and some that they would. You see, this wasn't just a you shouldn't eat these animals, but rather the greater principle, the greater glory that God is teaching through Moses here is that even in what you eat, you demonstrate a holiness to God. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but you want to talk about a God that is radically practical. Let me tell you this. There is nothing in this world that you participate in regularly, annually, systematically, in any way that you were not designed to bring glory to God from. In obedience to his word, every area of life, even the practices of our daily life, are designed to bring God glory. Now see, here's the big hang-up. So often... This is the point where people go, dude, you're just being legalistic. You, you tell me what I can't do and what I can do. You're just being legalistic. But if that's where you're inclined, like if your meter tends to bend more to the far right of legalism and you go, you can't tell me that. Or, you know, I guess that would be the far left of, of licentiousness. Whichever way, listen, let that meter fly free today. Don't pay any attention to it, Okay. We'll come back to that in time and look at it. But I want us to see that that this, this is not just a you should or shouldn't eat these animals or those. But even in what you eat, you will bring glory to God in all ways and in all things. You know, we don't know all the reason that God declared some animals clean and some animals unclean. Now, there are scholars and theologians that are much more brilliant than I am. And they've written thousands of pages on why God called some animals clean and other animals unclean. But I'm going to do you a favor, and I'm going to bring you to the point where they ultimately come back around to after thousands of pages of argument and tell you this, we really don't know why he said some are clean and some aren't. So you're welcome. I just, I just saved you thousands of pages of reading right there. You don't owe me anything for that. 
It's, I'm, no, really, I don't mind. I don't mind. Here's what we do know. We do know he did say it. And that matters. That matters for people who love the Lord. That God commanded, we also know, that even in the eating, his people would honor him. You see, food laws distinguished the people as holy to the Lord in the land that they were going to live in. We also see this moving into verse 22 of chapter 14. You shall tithe all the yield of your seed that comes from the field year by year. Now, I can, I've sensed it in the first service, and I sense it in this service too. I know what some of you are thinking. Man, you preachers, it doesn't matter where you start. You can get to money faster than anybody I've ever seen, right? But I didn't get to money. God did. And what he's talking about is the produce of their lives. This is an agriculturally based uh, economy. And he's talking about that from which they produce in their lives. They will bring a tenth or a tithe of all that their seed yields. And it was to honor the Lord. Notice this though, that what they're to do with that tithe. Let's look on a little further. Verse 23. And before the Lord your God, in the place that he will choose to make his name dwell. Does that sound familiar? Verse or Chapter 12, remember that? When he was teaching on true worship, that they were to worship in the place where he chose for his name to dwell. So that's what he's talking about. In true worship, this is what you will do with that tithe. You shall eat the tithe of your grain, of your wine, and of your oil, and the firstborn of your herd and flock, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now this is interesting. In the place that God chooses, where his name and his presence will be set, you shall eat, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God in all ways, always. And he goes on to explain in the remainder of the chapter that if you live too far and it's too cumbersome for you to travel a great distance trying to carry all of this baggage weight, so to speak, of the grains and the the animals, then sell it where you live, bring the money, and he says, buy whatever your heart desires and and buy, buy as much as you can with all of the tithe that you have and then rejoice. Eat it before the Lord, and that will be your offering of the tithe of your produce. You see, tithe was used to rejoice before the Lord, to represent his provision in life. And so tithe represented God's provision and his blessing for the people in order to rejoice in him. This is an interesting contrast, is it not, between between the tithe command and the food command. Here we have food. And what does he say? You shall not eat of everything that is around you, but only of the things that I tell you you should eat of. And then he says of the tithe, you shall eat all of it in order to remember that I provided it for you. And in that remembering, you rejoice. And so we have this contrast that's created. And we're reminded of this, that Even though there are many supplies of food in the world, God says, of all that is around you, you don't just take freely from it, but you eat only what I tell you to eat. And of all that represents all that I've done for you, rejoice and consume it all. 
Because in your feasting is your rejoicing and your remembering that it was my hand that provided it for you. You see, friends, you always benefit from and are blessed by that which you offer to God in worship. Always. Always. God will not allow you to offer something to Him in worship and not richly bless you and lead to rejoicing in the midst of it. Might I just draw an illustration for us this morning? That this morning's service and ministry of the gospel, that this morning's fellowship uh, of which you have benefited from and, and hopefully are being blessed and helped by is brought to you by the faithful tithes of God's people at Life Point. This ministry of the gospel is here today because God's people have made a way for it to be here. And that's a very real, though different, and we'll get to the application uh, that comes in the New Testament in a moment, but a very real understanding of what Moses is teaching the people that they would do in bringing their tithe to rejoice. Every week, you and many others partake of a faithful gospel ministry. And your active participation demonstrates a witness of glory unto God in the world. And so both of these commands, that you should refrain from some and you should rejoice in, they lead the people to receive their provision in recognition that it is from God's hand. Sometimes we understand that the provision of God's hand tells us that you can partake in some, but you shouldn't partake in others. That's good. As a parent, right? You follow that same practice. You say, you can have this, but if you touch this, we got problems, right? But in the other way, that which represents God's provision in the tithe, it's a full participation because of the rejoicing that it brings. Everything present in creation was not given for their provision, but all provision for rejoicing is given by God. Their practice demonstrated to themselves and to others that God and God alone was their provision. And so obeying God's commands, it's more than just right performance, friends. This isn't adhering to a set of rules. It's not just checking off a to-do list, but rather it, it, it's more than right performance. It always produces glory to God and rejoicing for His people. So often we reduce obedience to God just to good morality or doing what is right in God's eyes. And obedience to God is more than and also greater than just ritual. David teaches us, and we're taught this throughout the Bible, but David explains it very poignantly in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, where he says, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. That's ritual, just going through the motions without any meaning. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering, he says. But the sacrifices of God are a broken and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. What does he say? God does not reject the one who opens his heart and says, God, here I am. You don't despise that. What does God despise? The meaningless motions that we go through without any mental engagement or affections being drawn from it. 
Distinctive Jewish practice is no longer bound Christians in the New Testament. We see this in Galatians and Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. I mean, Paul's constantly telling these things. And even Acts chapter 15 is, is about this very thing, about how distinctive Jewish practices are no longer binding on Christians in the New Testament. And many of the Christians practiced those things because they were Jews who had become Christians, but they weren't binding as Christians on them, and neither were they binding on Gentiles who would become Christians. But Food and giving did remain of great theological and missional importance in the New Testament. It takes on a new meaning. In Matthew chapter 7, uh, it records Jesus' teaching on what defiles a person. And it's talking about um, that, that what goes uh, into a person is not what defiles them. Some people were arguing that if you eat the wrong kinds of meat, it defiles you and, and, and God won't love you and, and all of those kinds of things. And Jesus said, it's not what goes into a person that defiles a person, it's what comes out of them. For out of the heart come idolatry and immorality and out of the heart comes vileness and, and, and backbiting and slander against other people. And so that's what defiles a person. And then we see in Acts chapter 10 that God showed Peter, good old Peter, good old Jew himself, Peter, who was upstanding in every way. In Acts chapter 10, it tells us that, that in the afternoon while I was waiting on lunch to be served, he fell into a trance. And in this trance, God lowered a sheep which had all different animals on it, both clean and unclean. And Peter said, not me, Lord. I wouldn't eat of anything that is unclean. And God said to him, do not call unclean that which I have called clean. What did God do? He said, look, there was a reason that I chose to give you the food law in Deuteronomy. But I'm telling you, that law is not binding on you anymore. And it's released and it's no more. Now that... You, you don't practice something all your life and then just, you know, all of a sudden stop and start doing something. That's called old dogs have problems learning new tricks, right? And so he, 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 he gives this paradigmatic shift for Peter. And the sheet's lifted. And Peter's like, wow, I can eat whatever I want to now, right? He's, he's probably more like, whoa, I, I don't know if I can eat whatever I want to or not. I mean... But when God applied it, what did he do? A few moments later, a knock at the door comes, and it's Gentiles. And God made the application of the removal of the food law by leading Peter to a home of Gentiles where he would preach the gospel. And through the preaching of the gospel, that entire home would be saved. And through that salvation, the gospel would go then to every tongue, every tribe, every nation, Gentile and Jew alike. How powerful God takes this food law, transforms it by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and applies it so that his name can be made known in the world. And friends, I'm telling you, this is what he's doing for us today. It's what he's doing for us in this study in the book of, of Deuteronomy. Later on, Paul shows Christians how the food law is removed in Romans 14, 1 through 4. And, and he goes on to talk about those that just because the food law is removed doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, Right? That the food law removal doesn't create a free-for-all. He says this, what you eat and who you eat it with. I got those backwards in the first servant. said, who you eat and what you eat it with. That's, that's always bad. I don't care what preacher says otherwise. 
But what you eat and who you eat with remains significant controversy in the New Testament. Significant controversy. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 8 that, that they have a right and a freedom to eat their foods. But they should never use those rights and those freedoms to exercise them in such a way that they would be or become a stumbling block for weaker people of the faith. And so there is a way in which our freedom should be restrained for glory. He goes on in 1 Corinthians 10, 14 through 11, uh, through chapter 11, 1, and he instructs them that, that you know, you can eat of these things, but, but, but all things are lawful for you. But the question you have to ask is this, are they helpful for you and are they helpful for others? So in your partaking, is it helping you and is it helping others? Not only that, but is it actually beneficial? Like you're going to benefit from this. There are other questions because of the gospel and because the gospel tells us to get beyond yourself and don't be self-centered and self-focused. The gospel says to us that we must consider others and we're going to see that more fully in just a moment. But the gospel means that even what or how we eat and who we eat with matters for our witness. As Peter will find out, it also matters for who we refuse to eat with. You see, when we look at tithe and giving in the New Testament, we see an equally great shift. You know, people uh, are no longer giving just the tithe of produce in the New Testament. They're, they're giving of themselves in accordance with the gospel. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He says before they gave any money or anything that would meet a physical need, first they gave of themselves. And friends, when we talk about the law of tithe, and, and incidentally the tithe is, transcends the law because it came before the law as worship. As an expression of worship. And then, because God gave the law, he brings it into the law to help them understand how to rightly apply it in their life. And so, as it comes out through the law into the New Testament, it becomes a foundation and not the goal for giving in the New Testament. But do you know what the New Testament teaches in giving? Giving of themselves. And the Bible tells us that they sold land, they sold home, they sold possessions. Not just to give, but so that when they gave, they would be giving of themselves. They didn't just give from what they produced. They gave from who they were. Why? Because giving in that way more fully demonstrated the way God had given to us in Jesus Christ. He gave of himself at just the right time. Galatians 4, 4 said that I read earlier. God sent his son. He gave of himself. And so the New Testament teaches and models that Christians give sacrificially. You see, Jesus transforms Christians to a new law. It's the law of love. And what does the Bible say? The Bible says that love fulfills all law. There is no law that contradicts love. There is no law that, that nullifies love. You see, God works in us. I want you to get this. God works in us to look to Him out of love for him and to think about all things in light of him in order to follow him and bring glory to him. Do you know what the impetus of that sentence is? If you're taking notes, it's going to be the same word for every blank that you fill in. Him. That's the point of putting that sentence in front of you. It's about him, Jesus. It's not about us. 
It's not about us. That's what it means to live in relationship, to live in this dependency. You see, Moses was teaching the people that in the way that they lived in their homes and in their daily lives for the most basic of provisions in life, and then the way they lived and, and how they represented what their life had produced, in all of these ways, they would bring honor and glory to God. There was a closeness that they needed with the Lord. It reminds me of an old hymn uh, called, I Need Thee Every Hour. And it goes like this. It says, I need thee every hour, most gracious Lord. No tender voice like thine can peace afford. Stay thou nearby, for temptations lose their power when thou art nigh. I need thee every hour in joy or pain. Come quickly and abide, or life is in vain. I need thee every hour, teach me thy will, and thy rich promises in me fulfill. I need thee every hour, most holy one, O oh, make me thine indeed, thou blessed son. And the, the refrain in between each of those verses speaks this, I need thee, oh I need thee, every hour I need thee. O oh, bless me now my Savior. I come to thee. That song captures the spirit of what Moses is teaching the people about their relationship with God in the land and about what we learn in relationship with God through Jesus Christ. We need thee. Oh, we need him. Every hour, in every practice, in every way, we need him. We must never forget this principle. Verse 21 of chapter 14 says, For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. Glorifying God in all things means that every life practice honors Christ and doesn't default to cultural norms. Jesus, friends, He infuses our practices. And what I mean by that is that what we believe about Jesus penetrates to the things we practice because of Jesus. Jesus infuses our practices to glorify God and to refuse to default to cultural norms of worldliness. That's the first way that Jesus redeems our life. The second area that Jesus redeems our life we see in chapter 15, and it's the area of imbibed priorities. Imbibed priorities. Look at chapter 15. He goes on to talk about the sabbatical year, and he says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant uh, release, and this is the manner of the release. And so he begins to enter in to expand on the command of the Sabbath that we see in the Ten Commandments, and this is that sabbatical year. It was the seventh year, and it was dedicated as a year of rest, but also as a year of release. That first phrase in verse 1, he says, at the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And he literally is saying that you shall let the land lie unplowed. What if God said to you, you should not work every seventh year? Man, I just want to think I'd be all about that. I mean, you know, I'll see y'all in a year. Right? But that's what he was saying. This is actually a great principle of land stewardship for this kind of economy. 
because it would let the land rest and be renewed. But, but what he's saying is, is not only to rest, but to release. That's what literally the Hebrew means there. And, and in this context, the command of the Sabbath prioritized life to honor God in all the rhythms of life. That's what he's teaching here. And so the sabbatical law demonstrates an expression of trust in God. What kind of trust, you say? Well, you've got to trust that what God's going to provide for you in those six years will be sufficient not only to provide for you in those six, but also to cover the seventh as well. And what we're going to see is not just to cover it for you and for yours, but for those who lived around you, who were poor, impoverished, who stood in need. You see, what Moses is going to do is he's going to expand the law of the Sabbath to be more than just rest, but to be also more than just between you and God. See, he says this, that rest provides a common denominator. That's what I want to call it. You know, that that kind of evens everything out. Everything must be filtered through a common denominator. And what rest does is it provides a common denominator for godliness against worldliness. So when you trust Jesus to practice Sabbath in your life, in the rhythms of your life, rest becomes a high priority for you because it is a way for you to fight for godliness and against worldliness in your life. Worldliness exhausts us, does it not? Even when we consider the rest, but if if worldliness is our common denominator and we put rest on top of that, what do we do? Well, it looks like this. I need a vacation from my vacation. I need a day off to get over my day off, right? I mean, worldliness just winds you up and grinds you down and spits you out. There is no rest, man. We've got electricity. I don't have to turn off. I got to crank it up. I need some five-hour energy. I need some caffeine. I need some You know, he's just That's what it looks like. That's what worldliness leads us to. But godliness says, I'm clocking out, and I won't be back for 24 hours because day seven is God's. And everything that I take all week will be represented through the trust that I give him on this day to provide for it. So we trust him. Not only in the weekly patterns, but in the seasonal and in the annual rhythms of our life. But Moses does an interesting thing here. He he takes the meaning and he expands it, not outside of what God intended, but to instruct and explain what God intended. He expands the command to include how they were to treat other people. You see, the sabbatical year not only meant to rest, but it literally meant to release. And so he's talking about if you've got a slave and that slave's been enslaved to you for six years, you release them. They're free. They can go. Now, friends, I don't know about you, but some of you businessmen, you just had a twinge in the back of your neck there because you think that's bad economic counsel right there. I mean, that, that can be bad for business. You don't just get rid of your workforce, right? But God says, you know, if you trust in me, You release them. You not only rest yourself, but you release other people. You'll bless other people in the midst of your trust for me. It was basically this, that that in the sabbatical year, you were releasing your gaze from your own concerns. 
You weren't worried about whether or not it made economic sense for yourself. You weren't worried about whether or not you could provide for yourself if you actually trusted God in this. You were released from gazing on your own concerns and you were released to look after the needs of others, to consider them and to bless them by being generous. And so generosity, in the same way that rest provides a common denominator for godliness against worldliness, generosity became the common denominator for godliness against greediness. And when you look in the New Testament, you will not fight greediness without generosity. The only way to crush and destroy greediness in your own heart is not through pity, but it's through generosity. It's through generosity, fighting it where the battle is most intent. You see, the Sabbath begins with rightly aligned priorities. Loving God and loving other people and understanding that it's not one or the other or when one's convenient, figure out the other at another time. But these are inseparably linked with one another. You can't say, I love God, but I don't love other people. You can't say, I love God. God and I love other people but I just don't do anything outwardly to show it you see Deuteronomy 15 applies this law and says this is what it looks like to love God and to love others that you release that you rest yourself to trust in God but you also in that time are being able to focus and see the needs of other people and be a blessing from the way that God's blessed you to meet their needs and to love on them and, and and to become a greater blessing for the glory of God and so this guiding principle of Sabbath for our life just simply says this that we prioritize life life to demonstrate trust in God for all things through a regular rhythm of rest, of compassion, and of generosity. Now let me show you how he works this out in chapter 15. Go to verse 4 and look, because here's what he does in verse 4. He says this after he's just told him to release. He says, there will be no poor among you. Wow. Wow. Poverty abolished. Is that what he's saying? Verses 4, 5, and 6, he casts this perfect vision of no poverty among them. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you. And then look what he says immediately following in verse 7. If among you one of your brothers should become poor. Wait a minute. I thought verse 4 just said there weren't going to be any of those among us. You see what he's doing is he's drawing a perfect vision of God's plan but he's also showing how radically practical God is in the real world. Knowing that we're not perfect should never cause us to not look upon God's perfect plan for our lives, friends. For the vision that God casts for his people is always beyond us. It's beyond what we can do. It's beyond what we can contrive or think it's it's beyond what we could conceive but it does cast for us a vision of what God wants to do through us and among us and we need that kind of a vision to raise our eyes from the muck and the mire that we so often get burdened down in in life so that tension is created for a reason actually that tension is picked up again in the new testament In chapter 2 and in chapter 4 of the book of Acts, Luke writes that there was no needy person among them. Describing the early church, 
And he basically said there was no one who had any need among the whole church. Are you nuts? Do you know what, you know what that says? And what is Luke doing there? Luke is picking up this idea from Deuteronomy. And what a powerful statement. And surely we know that there were persons among them who were in need. We see them in the book of Acts. But Luke's point is not to claim that they had annihilated need, but rather that God's people met one another's needs. This is so beautiful. You know, I'm convinced that God gives us needs so that he can use other people in our life. And it's the exact point that he makes in the following verses. Needs among the early church were met by the sacrificial giving of the church. And the early church in the New Testament, in regards to giving, they didn't ask this. Well, is there anything uh, around my life that I don't want or I'm not going to use that I can get rid of? And so they gave from their lives. That's not how they approached giving in the early church. Rather, giving in the early church was asking this question, how can I give of myself to serve this person? And you see, generosity became an overflow of blessing to other people from what God was doing within that person. And so Luke picks up this whole aspect of Sabbath, of seeing other people with compassion, and then addressing the needs that were seen with generosity. And friends, if you're to bless other people as God desires for you to, you must learn to rest in God first. Because the greatest way to ignore the needs of other people is to be so busy you don't have to be bothered by them. Right? I'm telling you, man, when I'm having, I, I'll, you'll stand in front of me and I will run into you, back up, and go around you and never know you were there. I mean, I can get that distracted by things. Don't believe me? Ask my wife. She speaks, I don't hear anything. That's not on purpose. Most times. But we've got to learn to rest in God so that we can relate to others with compassion, with generosity. You see, compassion stands refreshed in the gospel and ready to acknowledge need without needing to be blown over by it. This is so often the way that we uh, divert away. We, we give pity. Friends, pity is not of the gospel. P- pity is not an expression, oh, better you than me, <laughs> right? When you see someone in need. No, the, the Bible says that Jesus looked on the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. They were hurting. They were lost. They were wandering. They were vulnerable to the enemy. Just like a sheep would be without a shepherd. And so eyes of compassion look on other people and see needs in people's lives often before those needs are even articulated and shared. Maybe it's through the countenance of their face and their body language. Maybe it's through the tone of their voice. And you go, wait, everything doesn't sound right. And a compassionate heart says, hey, are you okay? Is there something I can do for you? And you begin to look for need. Not to create it, but knowing that it's there. And you extend compassion to other people. And then when that need arises, sometimes you're the one that can can meet that need and God's designed you to meet that need. And I think oftentimes when God shows you a need in another person, it's because He wants to meet that need through you. At the very least, if it's not from you, it'll be through you helping in some way. But eyes of compassion that see need address it with generosity you know what I don't know what I can do but I'm going to do something 
I'm not going to leave you in need and act like you didn't have any need. You know how they did this in, in, in Deuteronomy? He said, when you, when you plow your fields, don't collect everything. Bundle it up. But what gets left on the ground, leave it. Because others will need it. And they'll come and they'll take it. And so they were intentionally trusting the Lord with hearts of compassion, even though sometimes they didn't see the immediate need and the face that held that need and were generous in the way that they lived to meet that need. You see, Christians live in intentional priority that readies them to serve others in Jesus' name. And when Jesus centers our life and worship through the gospel, it means that a Christian's priorities revolve around Jesus and not around self. It's what he is saying, what he is leaving. And listen, friends, I, I want to rebuke you just a little bit, but only in the gospel to say this. If we don't have the bandwidth of life to serve and bless other people, we've filled our lives with things that have taken us outside of God's will. And I, I mean that in all good concern for you. And I mean that for myself. I mean, that's something I'm having to wrestle with this week in my own heart and in my own life. Christians glorify God by refusing to run on the world's schedule. But by learning to rest in God's priorities. And by demonstrating godly compassion and generosity toward others. Let me ask you this. Have you considered the priorities of your life recently? Your schedule? Your commitments of time? Of, of, of money maybe? Of the places that you frequent, the people you spend time with. Have, have you considered these? And ask yourself this, does Jesus absorb my mind in such a way? That's what the word imbibe means. So that he would set my priorities. and Say, this is important to God, it's important to me. This is a value to the gospel, that makes it valuable to me. And what is a value, I'll prioritize in the way I live my life. Jesus imbibes our priorities to glorify God by trusting in Him for rest, for compassion, for generosity. The third area that Jesus redeems Christians to glorify God through is the area of inhabited celebrations. Inhabited celebrations. I'm going to move quickly through this because our time is closing. Chapter 16, He introduces three principal annual celebrations for the Israelites. The celebration of Passover, the celebration of the Feast of Weeks, and the celebration of the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, let me cover these three very quickly and just give you a general introduction to them. Passover was the annual celebration that remembered God's saving act during the 10th plague in Egypt. If you'll remember, Moses went to Pharaoh for the 10th time and said, let my people go. Or God will send another plague. And Pharaoh by this time was on his, you know, he was on his heels. Uh, he was saying, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. I mean, he was doing that whole thing. And finally he said, no, I'm not going to let him go. So God was going to move through the camp. And every house would lose its firstborn as he moved through the camp. But he told his people, if you'll sacrifice a lamb and paint the doorpost of your house with the blood of that sacrificial lamb, when I come to that house, I will pass over and the firstborn of that home will be safe. And hence the term Passover. And so after they left Egypt, they continued to celebrate Passover to remember God's provision in salvation in delivering them from Egypt. 
Egypt. Matthew 26 and 17 through 19, Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. When the Bible says that he takes the bread and he takes the cup, like just off the table. Now remember, these are people who generation after generation after generation have annually celebrated Passover to say we believe God saves us. And then one incredible dude that's been with them for not a very long time, but they knew something was distinctive about him. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he took the cup. This is my blood, which is shed for you. And here's what he said. He said, as often as you do this, What did he say? It was no longer an annual celebration. Now it was a daily reality of life. As long as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Friends, Christ inhabits his people through the Lord's Supper for deeper communion and for spiritual strength. The Feast of Weeks was celebrated at the beginning of the wheat harvest and it occurred Uh, seven weeks or 50 days after the Passover. And it became known as what we understand in Acts chapter 2 as Pentecost. It was the day that God poured out His Spirit, that His uh, disciples, uh, apostles spoke with great power in tongues that the people could understand. And in the understanding, 3,000 people were converted. And the age of the Holy Spirit and the age of the church began. And Christ continually inhabits his people, friends, to empower them as a witness of the gospel to all people, every nation. The New Testament says that if you will speak, the Spirit of God will give you the words to be a faithful witness for him. The third annual celebration was the Feast of Booths or Tabernacle. And it was also an annual celebration. It required every male to come. This is what I call biblical justification for camping. It lasted seven days and they lived in tents. So that they could remember God's deliverance from Egypt. And they could remember the temporary nature of their housing reminded them that this world was not their home. That the assurance of God was that there was an eternal home that in every way was greater than their home. We see in 1 Peter 2.11 that that... Peter reminds the Christians that you are exiles and sojourners in this world. Your greatest hope does not exist in this world. And so we understand that Christ continually inhabits his people to assure us that this world is not our home. And the best we experience in this world will not compare to the ordinary everyday in God's eternal kingdom. And so friends, look, with all three of these annual celebrations, Jesus redeems them to inhabit our celebrations, to become normal, daily, ordinary, always realities of life. Wow. How powerful. I'm going to ask the worship team to come. Jesus redeems this life by infusing our practices, by imbibing our priorities, by inhabiting our everyday life.
And the question that we should ask and we can ask is simply this. Is Jesus worthy for this? I mean, I mean is really, if he's going to be that, if we're going to make that claim about him, is he worthy to do this, to infuse our practices, to imbibe our priorities, to, to inhabit our everyday lives? Is he worthy to be Lord of those things? And I say to you today, the greatest message that you can hear is this. Yes. Yes, he is. Why? Because he has imputed his righteousness to us. We are not our own. We were bought with a price. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us, For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, Christ is our all. He is our life. Because He is our righteousness. And His righteousness has been imputed. It's been placed within us. And when we stand before God, God does not see us, but it sees Christ over us. And we stand before the Lord. And we stand in a world, not on our own, but we stand in the world to declare the glories of the one for whom we live for. The one who died for us and lives within us. What are you living for? What is your world, your reality, your life all about? Is Jesus worthy to be Lord of you? As the worship team leads us, we're going to come to the table. Just like Jesus revealed to them what the Passover really was all about, so he reveals regularly to us what it's all about his salvation the invitation today is simple if you're a Christian we invite you to come if if you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and you're trusting him through a personal relationship we invite you to consider what the spirit is speaking to you today and then come to be encouraged and to be strengthened in a deepened communion with Christ through remembering his sacrifice if you're here today and you've never come to a point in your life where you've repented of your sins and you've confessed Christ as the Lord and Savior of your life, we want to invite you to do that and become a Christian today. Whatever the Spirit is leading you in right now, let's go before the Lord and let's receive His righteousness by faith in Jesus that He brings for us.